Welcome to the Recovery Stories Podcast, bringing you stories of hope, healing, and triumph over the bondage of addictions, mental health struggles, trauma, and dysfunctional family systems. Our courageous storytellers have chosen to live their journey out loud in order to show others that they don't have to suffer in silence. The stories you will hear are raw, real, and may involve graphic and triggering content. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or are ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 877-351-7504 or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. This is the Recovery Stories Podcast, and I'm your host, Patrick Custer. I'm so glad that you've tuned in with us today and hope you stick around to the end of this episode to find encouragement and hope through this story. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. My name is Bevan Stepp. I'm really excited today. Welcome to Promises Rooted Recovery Stories. Uh, I'd like to introduce my beautiful co-host, Lori. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for my name is Laurie Besden. I am the executive director of Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers in Pennsylvania. The most important thing about all of us on here today is that we're all people in long-term recovery. And we are here because we, we want to provide hope, experience, and strength. And whether you're watching this just because you came upon it or you're watching it because you know Patrick or one of us, hope and help is always available. As long as somebody is breathing, please don't give up on them. Do not give up on them. Even in our active addictions, when the families are upset and at the end of their rope, everyone is doing the best they can. So exert as much patience and empathy as possible. Even if you don't want to reach out to a treatment facility because of concerns of whatever, or you don't know if you're ready for that step, three of us are very accessible. You can contact any of us through Facebook and find us easily. And we're here to help and we want to help. Uh, we can only keep our recovery by sharing it with other people. Thank you so much for joining us today. I can't wait to hear Patrick share his story. Back to you, Bevan. Thanks, Lori. That was beautiful. Um, so I have the honor and privilege of uh, announcing our speaker for today. Many of you know him. He is our uh, alumni coordinator for all of our facilities. Um, I met Patrick a few years ago. And he is one of those people that I just felt an automatic connection with. Uh, I like to text him and tell him that if we live closer, I would force him to be my best friend and hang out with me all the time. Um, he is one of the most kind and loving people I've ever met. Uh, he loves animals. He loves his partner. He loves his friend. He's just so full of love and kindness and wants to give back to everybody. Uh, and on top of that, I know that he likes to have fun being sober because we didn't get sober to not have fun. Um, we like to play jokes on each other. He likes to scare people. That's one of his favorite things to do. Uh, but he's just so great all around, you know, and I know he has an incredible story, uh, such a strong story, and I can't wait for us to hear it and, you know, hear what he gives back to us. So with that, I'm going to give you Patrick. Hey, everybody. Um, I am Patrick Custer, uh, and I'm glad to be here today. Um, it's an interesting dynamic to be on the other side of uh, on the other side of this, telling my own story, um, and it is a little bit intimidating. Um, but uh, I'm excited because there is uh, there's some true power in um, uh, getting vulnerable 
and sharing sharing your truth, sharing your um, all your stuff. Uh, and so it's been a little while since I've, I've shared my story, so I'm excited to do that. Um, I was going to start with my childhood. Did you all have any questions for me regarding my childhood to get started? Hi, uh, it's me again. I'm sorry. I didn't know what order we're going in. Oh, I was just saying, I, did you all have any specific questions um, as far as starting in my childhood? Because I was going to start there. But if, No, if I think that's a great place to start. Yeah. Often a lot of, you know, what happens in life goes back to our childhood, you yep. know. I think it's yeah. very important to lay that foundation and then please share everything with us. We can't wait to hear it. Cool. Yeah, we'll ask questions as we go along. All right, sounds good. Um, okay, so um, I am 33 years old and I was born in Dallas, uh, Dallas, Texas, actually a suburb of Dallas called Plano. And um, let's see, I was only there for a few years before my family moved uh, here to Nashville. And uh, I'm the youngest of four children and um, we're, we're quite spread out. Um, uh, my brothers are a good 15, I think 15 and 17 years older than me. And I've got a sister that's four years older than me. So I am the baby of the family. Um, so born into a very, uh, very conservative Christian family. And um, that, you know, we'll, I'll go into a little bit later as far as the dynamic that played for me and, and, uh, throughout my life. Um, but, uh, you know, we moved, we moved to, uh, Brentwood, Tennessee, uh, when I was a young kid and, uh, my earliest knowledge of, uh, I would say addiction or drinking or alcohol period was addiction. Um, my addiction runs down the bloodline of my dad's family very heavily, very strong. And uh, my oldest brother, when my family moved to Nashville, stayed in um, Dallas and was uh, very heavily active in alcoholism. So my earliest memories of him and interacting with him were of uh, somebody who was never coherent on the phone or in, in person when we would go visit him. And, uh, you know, my and let me preface all this by saying I absolutely believe wholeheartedly that my parents did the best they knew how to do with what they had and with the cards they were dealt with uh, in regards to all of us. Um, you know, they, they were put in a very difficult situation. And um, so, you know, I, I remember my my mom and dad being very very um, watchful over my sister and I about answering the the phone back when we had landlines um, at the house because my brother my brother would call and they were they were uh, trying to shield us from that um, because you know they didn't know what he was going to say they knew we wouldn't clearly understand but I mean even at a very early age I remember them having a conversation with us about what alcohol was that it was harmful and this is why it was harmful and it's you know destroyed our brother's life and and what have you and um you know so for me drugs and alcohol were uh really demonized from an early age and not i say they were demonized not that i'm advocating them now but um i, I never learned about uh that there were you know there was uh there were balanced normal drinkers out there or anything like that because that wasn't a reality in my family 
Um, and so moving forward, um, I would say that two, two of the biggest um, negative influences for me as a child were, were the, the addiction piece with my brother and fear. Fear manifested for me at an early age. We went to a lot of funerals um, as uh, in my childhood. And um, my parents had me later in life. And I was aware of that. It was something that was talked about. And um, I was really scared that um, my first fear was that they were going to die before I was of, of normal age, you know, that before I got to have my parents around for a while. Um, and as I got a little bit older, and by a little bit older, I mean like probably five years old, um, I started to have fears surrounding my, my own mortality. And uh, I mean, not just like the normal fear that I think everybody has, but it was haunting for me. And this lasted all the way up through, um, I would say I deal a lot better with it now today, but um, it's been a constant theme for me through my life. I think that's really interesting. I'll just make a comment about yeah. that because I don't know if normal people, people who aren't in recovery, I mean, I'm sure they think about it, but I remember as a kid having that very intense feeling of death and not understanding it. And even mm -hmm. so that's interesting that that plays a part, you know? Yeah. And can yeah. I chime in? Also? I always had, I mean, in my younger years and about the same age you're talking, had an intense fear that my parents would die. Like I was deathly afraid of losing them. Um, and I don't know where that came from, but that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's amazing how, uh, you know, no matter how much we try and especially emphasize in, I, I feel like in America, making childhood this um, make-believe wonderland, mm -hmm. you know, we have all these mythical things that we tell children to try and make it, uh, you know, make, to make, make childhood great. Um, I per my personal belief system is that it, it makes for, um, you know, when, when all that gets torn down. It conveys some mixed, huge, largely mixed messages for children, um, and and develops trust issues uh, later in life. Um, you know, I cannot say his name, but I think it's Bessel Bessel Vanderkock uh, is a psychiatrist, a doctor of the mind. I'm not sure how decorated his um, education is, but he is behind trauma. Um, I think one of the the, the fathers of of speaking on it and curriculum and what have you today it talks about he talks about how trauma doesn't come up as um, a memory it comes up as um, a response like a behavioral response mm -hmm. um, and, and an experience and I, I just think that's so true we sometimes don't Think about how um, certain situations, little T traumas or big T traumas, um, were actually legitimately traumas in our life because uh, when we think about them, we kind of have, we've categorized and dealt with what we feel when we think about it, what we're supposed to think about it, right? But when you start to think about that situation and how it actually shows up and affects you processing and dealing with similar situations um, throughout your life and in your life today, how much effect does that really have? And, um, you know, for me, I, I, that's, that's a real big, powerful thing. These, you know, what we're talking about here. So both, you know, the whole thing of fear and addiction. So 
Um, moving forward, uh, let's see. I was homeschooled my whole life. So to give you kind of a picture of, of my family life and, and what my parents, uh, you know, how my parents raised us. We were uh, we were raised in a like I said a conservative Christian family, but Pentecostal basically specifically, um, and uh, raised in a town where everybody's pretty much white, upper middle to upper class, um, and Baptist or Presbyterian. You know, so um, it was very interesting that the way that I, the dynamic with which I was raised because I was homeschooled and the friends I had were either from church, um, which was, you know, our church was on the other side of Nashville and pretty much everybody who went to our church, all the kids were from completely different backgrounds and upbringing than me. Um, and because I was homeschooled, my other, my, my other friends or my school friends were other homeschoolers who also, you know, were mostly Christian, um, but they had much different, you know, much, much different um, uh, relationship with Christianity, I would say, you know, the Pentecostal uh, denomination. Um, just, you know, there's a lot of differences there. And so um, I would say that that is where I started to feel different. When, when, you know, when you're old enough to be choosing friends uh, rather than the friends that your you know parents um, kind of <laughs> put you with when you're you know when you're young, um, that I started to feel different there because I didn't necessarily fit in any of the the pet and the you know they talk about a square peg in a round hole. You know, it, it didn't feel like I fit in any of any of the areas that I would go to. Um, you know, now I know that my gosh, you know, we're all kind of, we all have a little bit of a story like that. So, um, I don't think I was unique in that. I didn't feel like I fed it fit in. Um, this is just kind of how, how mine manifested for me. Um, so, you know, moving forward, I was very driven, a, a driven kid. Um, and, uh, you know, really, I, I think both of you probably know this, uh, you know, I, I joke about the fact that I put the extra and extrovert because I am, I love people. I really don't need alone time at all whatsoever. Um, I refuel and recharge by being around others. And um, so as you can imagine, that was a little bit difficult being a homeschooler. Um, it was homeschooling was all I ever knew. So K through 12, it was homeschool. Um, so I knew that there was something missing for me. I didn't know what it was, but I definitely craved social interaction and more than what I was getting. And so um, I got really involved with volunteering with the YMCA in Middle Tennessee. Um, I did I did a lot of volunteer work and community service um, just because uh, I, I wanted to be involved. I wanted to be part of something that was a bigger picture and um, be with people. Um, I would say that that's when my heart of service kind of really started to uh, come forward. And um, so, you know, moving forward, I go through high school, um, do do lots of stuff that, like I was mentioning, you know, through uh, the YMCA and other volunteer organizations, uh, and I graduate and go to college. As you can imagine, experiencing a classroom setting and being around that many people in school for the first time as a young adult, 
which is funny saying that because now I look back and think like yeah, 18 years old, a young adult. I look at 18 year olds now and I'm like, they're in middle school. Um, but, but you know, that classroom setting at that age for me was uh, both wonderful uh, from, I, I mean, it was, it really, it was really wonderful for me because all of a sudden I felt like all my needs were being met that hadn't really before. Um, and then also, you know, slightly terrifying because this whole world opened up for me slowly before my eyes that, uh, was completely different than the world that had been presented for me growing up. And, uh, so I, I, let's see, I think I made it through my freshman year without drinking, you know, without drinking anything. And mind you that my mindset this whole time was that, uh, drugs and alcohol are bad. Um, they like hundred percent, absolutely. Right. Alcohol, not even drinking a little bit is okay. Um, and, uh, that they would make you go crazy and whatever there was a it was a very black and white thinking for me um so i don't know it was the beginning of my sophomore year i think or summer between those two years that a friend of mine was like i think you'll be okay you know like we were at a party or something and i tried drinking i had a, had a couple beers and i had that infamous aha moment where um i started to feel affected but the um the way i felt affected was not anything like what I had expected, right? Um, I was ultra paranoid that I was going to feel crazy, lose my mind, lose control of myself, because that was the only representation that I had ever been given, right? Instead, I felt uh, calm, calmness and ability to focus um, and just be present and not care so much what other people thought, unlike any other, anything that had ever showed up for me in my life any other external influence um and it was wonderful but it also provided this feeling for me that you know as i processed it then and then over the next days and weeks um that my parents and those who had represented you know the the position that we took behind drugs and alcohol were maybe lying or not telling the whole truth because for whatever reason, maybe they were trying to protect me or maybe they, you know, I didn't know, but the, you know, the interpretation of what was going to happen to me did not line up with what actually happened. Right. So all of a sudden I started questioning everything, everything that I, you know, the, the worldview I had been raised with, um, all of it. And, uh, I went down, I won't even say a slippery slope. It was like the bottom fell out, right? <laughs> very, very quickly. Um, and over the next, so I was, that was, that was like right before I turned 19 or almost 20, I can't remember. And um, the next four years were, was my drinking, drinking and using career. And I will say, you know, I, I was in and out of college. I think I went to three total different uh, colleges during that time. Uh, had a difficult time, obviously, you know, would do well at first. And then um, <laughs> drugs and alcohol happened, right? Like 
uh, difficulty showing up, difficulty showing up on time, um, finishing things. That was a that was a. Big did your did your family notice this? Because it's interesting how you went. You know, you were doing so good and so against it. I can relate to that so incredibly much. Except for I was so against it, and then I did it as soon as I turned like thirteen or fourteen. Um, so, I'm really glad that you asked that question because, um, you know, again, my and I now that I'm an adult and you know think with a, probably a more similar mind to understanding where my parents were coming from, I I kind of get where they were coming from with a lot of this and, and, you know, their fear behind, you know, their actions. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I had barely started drinking and I can't remember what happened. I think, Oh, I got a DUI. Um, and my car got impounded like it, <laughs> like they do. And, um, my dad had my brother. I mean, like they made a big to do about it. Right. And my dad had my brother come talk to me at school and was basically like, look, you need to get help. You're just like me, you know, yada, yada, yada. And you have to understand at 20 years old, this, I had just, it was an accident, you know, I, and honestly, even, even now with an adult brain, looking back at what happened, um, I had, it was one of those situations where I had, um, I, I'd been at a party, a friend was in trouble. We left because I had driven. I didn't understand the, the ins and outs of the difference between liquor and beer. And I had had an entire cup of vodka. It was the first time I'd ever had vodka. And I didn't understand that you couldn't have a cup of vodka and it would do something different for to you than, than beer. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're a mile down the road from this party. I, all of a sudden I start to feel weird and different right and not good and uh so i pulled a car over it's a foggy night uh, there's a huge berm on the side of the road and i pulled the car over turn it off turn my hazards on and put the keys in the in the floorboard and i'm like we've got to sit here and wait this out because something's not right i don't feel right i don't feel safe i shouldn't be driving um but i ended up getting a dui a cop, you know unmarked cop car came to check on us because we got our hazards on over on the side of the road. And probably by the time we got there, I don't really remember anything after that, you know, a certain point. And, you know, I, I had to have been just completely hammered, especially because I wasn't used to drinking yet. So I take the time to explain that detail because for me to give you a picture of what I feel like anybody in my shoes would have in that situation been like, that was, that was an accident and born out of naivety, right? And, well, absolutely, uh, since you just started. Mm -hmm. so, Such denial. Yes. And so, you know, having my brother come talk to me and kind of my family's reaction to that whole situation felt very blown out of proportion um, at the time to me, right? And um, I had a hard time seeing or understanding where they were coming from. So I'm like, yeah, you guys are crazy. And, you know, it sucks that that happened and I feel bad about it and what have you, but I'm in no way, shape or form the person that my brother was as I was growing up. Because to me, we're talking about somebody that I was brought up with very black and white thinking. So it was either I, I was that guy who barely ever got out of bed and could you could have hardly understand him, right? Because he drank all day. And that's the guy that needs to go to treatment. That's the guy that's an alcoholic. And that's what I felt like 
they were saying to me at that point, right? See, this is proof you're Hagen. Hagen's my oldest brother's name. And um, it didn't line up. It didn't make sense. And it only further made me detach from believing anything they said. Um, and really from the ability to, to, to connect, to use them as a resource, to lean on them. Um, I was pulling away from everything, you know, and, and during this time too, I feel like it's important that I add, uh, you know, I'm a gay man and I the, was raised in a way that, that, um, you know, in, in the church and the denomination we were raised in, uh, that's, that's a, considered a choice, a lifestyle choice. And um, something that uh, even from my earliest, earliest age of recognition, um, I guess the best way to describe it to somebody that, that might be outside of the scope of, of, of my life would, would say, would be to say that um, our church, our family, you know, viewed homosexuality as something that is a choice and that the devil comes as an influence on your life and tries to attack you. So uh, my interpretation of those feelings that I felt from an earliest age and what have you was just that, right? So I'm constantly uh, interpreting those signals as this is a direct correlation to my relationship with God and how successful I'm being in regard to that. And um, as you can imagine, it really affected my self-esteem, self-worth, um, and uh, understanding of the world, right? So um, at this time, I'm questioning everything. Um, my parents are like, we're, we're not paying for school for you anymore. And, you know, I don't know. I don't even remember the conversations that were happening. But the only answer for me was, well, I'm going to stay in Nashville with all my friends that I've made in school. And I mean, I couch surfed for like, I feel like a year, maybe uh, longer or shorter. I'm not sure. And, you know, in that environment, there's there's alcohol available all the time. I mean, somehow I got all my needs met. Right. Um, but my parents weren't paying, they weren't paying, they had put their foot down. They weren't paying for anything. And, um, I don't, I mean, they're I, I'm just briefly going to kind of try and fly through this. Um, you know, at some point enough was enough. And I started to try and reattach myself to some sense of, uh, some foundation, some sense of security, because I wanted what I had always wanted was a life of promise, a life of with purpose, um, and one that is fruitful and to have meaning and value um, and whatnot. And I, I knew internally that what I was doing was not going to produce that. But I also didn't know. I did not have a roadmap laid out for me on what I could do. So I started to try and grasp its straws, just figure out something, right? And can, I interrupt, can I interrupt you just yeah. for a second? Was there, a, I mean, was there a pivotal incident or moment? You know what I mean? Like kind of like we say a spiritual awakening and it doesn't need to be a DUI or 17 arrest, but do you remember the moment when you were on someone's couch and you just thought, this is not the life that I want for myself. 
Do you remember, was, was it a moment like that or not really a, a moment and it was just a period of time and you were just looking in the rear view mirror like I don't want, this is not the life I want for myself? Um, I would say that I didn't have any pivotal moments like that until later on. At this okay. point I was, so that's a, that's a really great question and I'll get a little bit more into detail on that in a second. Um, but uh, so, at this point, I'm like, I, I don't remember how it happened, but I, I, you know, I had already been going down a road of questioning my sexuality. And I think I had started to try and kind of come out a little bit. And um, a friend of mine, basically, I ended up in a relationship with a woman in college, another girl, a girl. And uh, we started dating. And I, I think in the back of my mind, it was it was me trying to um please my parents, but also do the right thing. And it was one thing that I could do to feel like I was going down the straight and narrow, right? Like I, I, could, I wasn't lessening my drinking. You know, I, I would say that I did, I can't say that I wasn't lessening my drinking because I did, I, go, I went through the whole like, I'm not gonna drink Monday through Friday. I'm not gonna, you know, all the things we promised ourselves, right? Um, and, uh, so, you know, there was just a lot of, got a lot of partying and a lot of, uh, you know, in and out of school, odd jobs, um, drinking, yeah, you know, like I said, making promises that I wasn't, wasn't gonna drink, you know, through certain times. And I, I was definitely having an awareness that at this point, my choices, not necessarily my drinking, but felt like my choices had led me to a place in life where I was getting very concerned that my ability to uh, work hard, be successful, have a promising future was slipping away. And that really scared me. But I didn't, again, didn't know what to do. Didn't, it, you know, I, it, it was, I, I was flailing, I would say. So, um, you know, one piece I don't know that I've ever shared with either of you is that um, growing up, my goal was that I was gonna be a lawyer. That's all I ever wanted to be. And I was a political science major in college. And um, once I, you know, all that happened with, I, I went to Belmont University, which is a really good private school here in Nashville. And um, stuff started happening with my drinking. My parents cut me off and they're like, we're not paying for school anymore. Um, I ended that journey of political science, pursuing political science degree. And um, I had taken some, some, you know, whatever aptitude or personality, basically one of the, some of those tests that tell you what you, what profession uh, you'd be great for. And one of them said nursing. So I had uh, done the, the, taken the prereqs, did a couple semesters and taken the prereqs and gotten great grades to get into nursing school. And um, at the time it was very, very competitive to, to get into nursing school at all of the nursing school locations here in Nashville. Um, and I don't know, I think I had a 3.0 GPA and I had all A's in my prereqs, but still did not get um, accepted into nursing school until my third application period. So, you know, we're a year and a half into me applying and um, I had kind of given up. I was really, you know, I was at that place where I was maintenance drinking, working a part-time job um, and, you know, it's completely void of of direction, purpose, you know, all those things. But just waking up 
every day and doing the next thing because I had to. I didn't know what my future was going to hold. And I had completely forgotten because I think the last minute I had done the third, that third semester application to nursing school and um, and completely forgot that I did it. I did, had no faith that I was going to get accepted. Anyway, ended up getting accepted. And um, <clears throat> and it was like, I mean, it was a, it was a wonderful moment because I thought, wow, I'm I'm finally this is something that I'm going to get to do and find purpose, help change people's lives. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll find that solid place in life that, that I knew I was lacking. Right. Um, so <laughs> I've always been. Uh, had a deficit in the department of attention. Um, and uh, I don't remember how this conversation had come up, but somehow I ended up going to see a psychiatrist that summer to try and help uh, with my attention deficit issues. And, you know, I honestly can't tell you because at this point I had toyed around with, with Adderall in college. Um, and I was probably like, I don't know what percentage of me was truly seeking help to study and, and focus um, and what part of me was, you know, the, the addict coming out. I don't know that it really matters, but, it, you know, it was there. So start off with a normal Adderall prescription. And um, in the summer, I don't know why I started taking it in the summer, like to try and level out or figure out if it was going to work for me before school started. Well, by the time school started, the the Adderall, I, I mean, I went down a real quick slope. I, I ran out of Adderall like way soon. Talked, somehow manipulated my way into getting my doctor to prescribe me um, like two or three times the normal uh, prescription that, that he had originally prescribed. So I don't know. I it, it was literally bizarre. And I was still running out. Uh, running out early. Um, this this translated to me literally going. I mean, like I was methed out of my gourd on Adderall. Um, I was not sleeping, but once every three days. Uh, you know, Laurie, when we talked about your when you were sharing your story, and I think it was you, and you talked about um, how you would be up all night and all of a sudden, whatever, you'd start hearing the day getting started. Mm -hmm. and you'd have those feelings of defeat or just, you know, whatever wash over you. Um, it's, it's, it brought back this memory for me because every single day or every single night I would tell myself, I'm not doing this. I'm going to make myself go to bed. I'm going to be normal. I'm going to take care of myself. Right. And then it would be like the next thing I know, I'd hear the birds chirping outside. Mm -hmm. And those birds chirping at 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning and seeing the sun start to rise. Right. Talk about a trauma response for me. Even now, um, mm -hmm. if I have to wake up, I don't regularly wake up that early. Um, but if I do, there's, I, there, there's some weird feelings I have with that still. And I don't know if that'll ever go away. I don't know if I want it to go away because... Um, you know, I want that realness, that memory of. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I think those of us that have experienced that, which is hopelessness, we go from uh, practicing insanity, doing the same thing, expecting different results yes. to feeling defeated to then thinking there's not a way out of this. 
and maybe not living is the best solution. Do you know what I mean? That that was my process and my addiction. Yep. Um, oh my God, okay, I need to change it. It was almost like an alarm. Now, oh my God, I can't change it. Now, how do I get out of this? You know what I mean? And I'm, it sounds like you're relating to that and that you had a similar experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, you know, because the when you think about uppers, uh, they, they take you up, alcohol takes you down, right? Um, and when I talk about my addiction, I, I refer to alcohol as my drug of um, slavery and Adderall was my drug of choice. They both fed each other by the time I was at this place, right? So um, I really couldn't function during the day. Like once I woke up, I had to have both. Um, when I would sleep once every three days, it would be for a few hours because my body would wake me up from detoxing uh, because I needed more alcohol. At this point, I was drinking between a half and a whole handle of liquor every day, uh, just as maintenance, not to get drunk, so that I wouldn't lose my mind, so that I wouldn't shake, right? And for anybody listening that isn't super familiar about alcoholic beverage sizes, um, the handle, I, as far as I know of, unless things have changed since I stopped drinking, is the largest bottle you can buy liquor in. Um, and so that's a lot of damn liquor. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so I was, my body was deteriorating bad. Um, I, so this is, this is where, you know, time management and just being on substances all day long and not taking care of myself played and played a role. Like I got into nursing school and, uh, this was, uh, 2010, fall of 2010, got into nursing school, um, about a month in I had there they're real serious. It's not like normal college class in nursing school. Like you can't be late and they have all these strict rules and guidelines. Um, and, uh, I had been, this was literally, I was surprised that I didn't get in trouble for smelling like a brewery every day that I went. I mean, cause like I was having to drink all day. Like I had a bottle of liquor with me at school and go to the bathroom and drink, you know? Um, and, uh, uh, so it wasn't that, it was that uh, on my third time of showing up like five minutes late, uh, you know, I, and, and in all fairness, I had had a warning, but still for me, I mean, like five minutes late was on time, you know, uh, the, the director of the nursing program was like, Patrick, I just don't think this is right for you. And uh, maybe later in life, but right now I did, you know, this, this program has much higher standards than what I feel like you're able to show up for. And, um, that, broke it rocked my world it shattered me because um it that was kind of my last my last grasp at finding meaning and value um for myself in this world and um i i there was no way i could let my family know what had happened and um my parents had already started to ask questions. You know, they were like, why do you smell you? you how much did you drink last night? Because they could smell me from a whole room away. And of course, I get defensive, you know, and. Um, Can I ask you one question? Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt you. No, you're good. At this point, did you, in your heart of hearts, believe you were in an alcoholic and or a person no. in an active addiction? Did you no. believe that? No, I believed that it was a hundred percent. I had not exerted myself well. Um, mm -hmm. That I, I, 
I knew that if I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and made the determination, I could slow down or stop drinking, but that I didn't want to yet. And I, I mean, I 100% believe that. And it's so interesting for people who are on here today, you know, because all of us, common thread, regardless of what your drug of choice, whether it was dry goods, alcohol, whatever it is, we were the last ones to get the memo that we had a problem. Literally the last ones. Everyone else is pointing fingers at us and we're just saying, I do this because of you. You yeah. know, and it's so important. There's a spectrum. And just to remember, you know, that really, I mean, we have no awareness of our own, you know, behavior. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, thank you. Really you, know, if you think of questions or, or comments like that. I uh, just hop right in there because, um, you know, anyway, um, but that, yes, that was, that was a great observation or point. Um, but so, so uh, I, you know, yes, I had a complete lack of insight at this point. And um, I, I, this was where I would really say that my tomorrow complex started that many of us, most of us in addiction um, step into at some point uh, started for me because um, I knew I, I had to find, I had, there was a solution. I had to get honest. I didn't know what the solution was. I knew I was going to have to tell my family, like they were going to find out um, and that postponing it wasn't going to do anybody any good, but I couldn't do it today. I was so distraught and so overwhelmed with shame and guilt that, I mean, it ate me alive. And um, I like every shred of, of purpose that I once felt had been ripped away from me. So you take away somebody's purpose and then, you, you know, you throw all that guilt and shame on top of them. I mean, I was in a place where you name it, I was going to use it to numb the hell out. So I was at the time living with my parents and going to school. So I got dropped out and um, I continued to put on my lab coat and get my books and go to school every day. Because um, again, I couldn't face the, the reality and going to school every day meant like, I don't know, I don't remember. I mean, like I would go drive around, drink lots, I mean, I would go park in parking lots. I don't know, go to the library. Um, maybe the few friends that I still had that I hadn't pushed away that, because at this point, a lot of my friends and acquaintances um, and drinking buddies had already started, they had been making comments to me or to my parents about being concerned about me. So at that point, of course, addiction's in the front seat, in the driver's seat. So, in my head, I'm like, you know, I'm not spending time. I'm not talking to them, whatever. So there was like literally a couple people that I trusted enough to talk to or see in person at this point. At this point, were you still with, sorry, just curious. Now I want to know, were you with that girlfriend still or, or had you come to terms with anything going on with your inner self? Great. Cool. I feel like that play a part too, like with the heavy drinking, not acceptance, not having that self-love. Yeah. So great question. Um, I can't remember if it was that year or the year prior that, and I think it was the year prior. Um, she had basically, you know, and I look back at this and I'm like, I don't blame them at all. Really. She and my best friend, 
I found out had been, you know, uh, cheating on me uh, together mm-hmm. for about six months. And um, it was it was devastating to me. And, you know, I remember saying, listen, you know, y'all have a great life, whatever. And I never talked to them again because it was too mm-hmm. much for me. And I think a lot of that re- had for me, I didn't know how I was going to reconcile. You know, I felt betrayed and um, what have you. But I think more to do with anything was that it made me face I knew that there was something missing in my relationship with her. Um, and unfairly so, you know, I, you know, she, she wasn't getting a whole person. It, it, it wasn't great. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, something had to be done and she took a step. However it went about, wasn't maybe the, the most awesome or the right way to do it. But, um, you know, I think they ended up uh, getting married and are, you know, living a happy life now. And I'm, I'm you know, truly, genuinely happy for them. Um, I think that's interesting, though, with the drinking still, right? Like, I feel mm-hmm. like our truth, it can lead us to the denial, to not stopping. So that's kind of why I was curious about that. Absolutely. Uh, I, I guarantee you that whole. So that was 2000. That was 2009. Um, fall of 2009 that, and it led me into that. I, I use this as an excuse to just continue the wreckage, you know, and to continue doing what I needed to do. You know, it was, an, it was another excuse for me to feel sorry for myself uh, and why the problems in my life were someone else's fault. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, and I did not date. I mean, I didn't date at all for, I mean, it was a year or more. I think it was a year in sobriety before I even started dating. So I'll go into that in, in a second. But um, so I'm in a real dark place. No sleep, heavy using, manipulating, lying to my family. I mean, let me tell you, I was so terrified for whatever reason of my parents finding alcohol paraphernalia that I was... Um, I don't know how I ended up with like 19 or 20 backpacks, but I had them and um, they all would get filled with, um, with, with alcohol. And I mean, they were trapped. My parents basement, they have an underground of their house. That's like a dirt floor basement. They, when I went to treatment, they found, I, I don't remember how many bottles they told me, but like an insane number of liquor bottles. I never threw them away because I didn't want them to get found. And I don't know why I never took him to a dumpster. I guess I was afraid somebody was going to be like, alcoholic, take him to jail, you know? Uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, so I'm in a real bad spot and this charade goes on all the way through till um, February of 2011. And my dad has a huge health emergency. Um, he had a major pulmonary embolism that I think went through, which for those who don't know what that is, it's a a large blood clot that went through, I think both of his lungs. And um, everybody went to the hospital except for me when he had his episode, because I I, I had, I had this weird, it basically, I didn't want to be around them because they'd smell alcohol on me and I couldn't drink freely. Right. So I stayed at my parents' house. Because uh, I was like, if anybody calls, I need to be able to be there to answer the phone. Um, I don't know, some BS, right? Um, and it was 
days, I think a couple days into he had had open heart surgery and, um, and it was days in that I had finally broke down. I was like, I'm going to go to the hospital and my siblings, I passed them leaving my parents' neighborhood. And they were like, come back to the house, come back to the house. And they made it seem like something was severely wrong, which I was really upset about because I felt gypped, but they were basically coming back to do an intervention on me, which they did. And, um, and it worked. I mean, they said, you know, look, Patrick, we know you're not in school. The jig is up. Um, and you know, you're struggling, you're not okay. Um, we know, and you know, you need to accept help now, but you know, we'll tell you one thing is that mom's aware and she is not coming home until you have gone to get help. So you're either going to leave the house today. Um, and I don't know where you're going to go. Cause of course at this point, like, right, I'm spending all mine and my parents' money on cigarettes, alcohol, and Adderall, um, and whatever else. And, uh, uh, so, you know, they're like, we don't know where you're going to go, but you can either accept help and go to treatment or, uh, you can leave and go wherever. And, um, I accept, I mean, it, I don't even think I had to think about it cause you know, I knew now I'm going to loop back just for a second to something that Lori said. I, um, had <laughs> during this like six months, right before I got sober, uh, spent lots of time by myself period, but especially after everyone would go to sleep. So late at night thinking, you know, dark thoughts, all those things. And I remember feeling so lost, helpless and lonely um, that and depressed that I wasn't actively suicidal, but I definitely did not care if what I was doing killed me. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, if it killed me, I wanted to make sure as hell that I didn't feel anything. So, you know, like, <laughs> So it's just like it, it constantly fed itself, and um, and we're so all sitting you, here shaking our heads because every single person, you know, who has been in the darkness that you've been in, that we've been in, has felt the exact same way. And when you wake up, you're like, "Not this another day." You know, if yep. you're lucky enough to come to the next day, that's those are your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and so. Um, you know, uh, man, I, so much of, um, it's, it's funny because what we learn in recovery and in the rooms of 12 step and what have you is one day at a time, focus on today, what's in front of you, one foot in front of the next. Right. Um, and we have a hard time doing that with our recovery things, with our recovery brain and, and, and new, newly in sobriety. But when I look back at my active addiction, that was the only way I could handle life. I literally could only think about what was right in front of me or what was going to happen that day. If you tried to talk to me about tomorrow, I would either disassociate, lie my way out of it, um, act like a giant victim because whatever you're saying to me, how dare you for whatever reason, hold me accountable for anything. <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, it's weird how the, the, the table turns when we get sober, but that was definitely, you know, I would, I was literally just thinking about at that point when I, you know, towards the end, right before I got sober, what, where was I going to get my next drink? 
Um, how was I going to continue to do what I needed to do so that I didn't lose my mind? And you know, I'll mention here too, as when I got sober, it had been manifesting. I'm 24 years old and the physical manifestation of my, my using and drinking um, was so bad that um, I had started to, I had neuropathy from my elbows all the way down to my fingertips and from my knees to my toes. So um, like pain, tingling, numbness, I think in one of my hands, I'd um, like, I had almost lost like all feeling. It was really bizarre. And I remember looking up what that could mean and, and kind of looking at some things and seeing that there could be that there, like, I think there was like a cancer thing that could be causing it. And then somebody else was saying, you know, if this is related to alcohol, um, this is, you're beyond the point of, you may be beyond the point of health. Um, and of course, like there was no question in my mind, it had to have been cancer. But at the same time, I'm like, I, I used that rationale as well, man, if I get cancer, then screw it. I'm just going to drink <laughs> the red, you know? And um, so I'm in between these realities that are just completely off the chart. My body is falling apart. And um, um, gosh, I was really thin too. I, I don't know. I, I was probably um, a good 40 pounds lighter than I am right now. Um, and I'm, I'm a pretty small guy now. So, um, you know, I was just not, I was not healthy. And, um, I know that for me, everybody's story is different, but for me, um, I needed to get to a place where I was removed from access to substances and day in and day out, I was around other people trying to do what I was trying to do, which for me meant treatment. Um, and so I was so grateful to have that opportunity and to have family that knew because of what they had been through with others before and with other family members, um, that knew what needed to happen and took the action for me. I would not be here today if it weren't for my, um, you know, my, my parents and my siblings and, and the groundwork they had laid with their relationship to, um, different 12 step fellowships and, um, to, uh, treatment in and of itself. And, uh, so I'm hugely grateful, you know, I owe my life. Um, so I go to treatment. Uh, I do a month of residential and four months follow up, go into halfway house. Um, let me tell you, uh, halfway into residential, I had the worst attitude ever. I was there, but I was not trying. And they said, listen, we don't think you want to be here. And we're not sure whether we're going to kick you out or not. And your family said you're not coming home. And I think it was a scare tactic because they wanted me to start putting forth effort because I mean, like I was showing up in a bathrobe and not shaving and probably, I don't think I was showering, um, you know, like to, to group and, um, you know, I look, I look back and I, it makes me laugh a little bit because in my head, I'm like doing everything I need to. Um, back to a question one of you asked about whether or not I realized I was an addict. Um, interesting theme. Pride plays a huge part in my story for a long way through, even into, um, into treatment. Because we would have 12-step meetings. You know, everybody goes around, introduces yourself. And the traditional way that people do is 
you know, I'm Patrick and I'm either an addict or I'm an alcoholic, right? And um, at this place that I went to, there wasn't really an option to not introduce yourself as, you know, one of the two um, because it's what you did and, you know, they're holding everybody accountable. So my way of combating that, because I was not convinced that I was an addict slash alcoholic, um, I would introduce myself and say, hi, my name is Patrick, alcoholic. I would not say I'm an alcoholic. So that was my way of, you know, like toeing the line. Manipulating maybe, manipulating a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody caught it, you know, like I was the <laughs> only one that, you know, uh, but I just think it's funny the things we do because we're unwilling to let go. We're unwilling to surrender. We, I mean, here I am at treatment, show, not showering and showing up to group in a bathrobe. And I can't admit I'm an alcoholic, right? So they had this talk with me and it was a, it was a come to Jesus moment that really woke me up. Um, and it, 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 changed the trajectory trajectory of my recovery in such a big way because it was it just kind of shook me and and realized that i needed to start at that point i literally threw my hands up and said whatever i need to do i started asking what does someone seeking recovery what does someone seeking solution or someone who wants it look like today what do i need to do to look like that what do I need to do to make you, meaning the leadership over me where I was, uh, believe that that you have my buy-in, right? And um, I kept asking those questions and that, that, that pattern for me continued on throughout sobriety. Um, and probably the, one of the main things that, uh, you know, made, made it possible for me to attach myself to um 12 step programming and and what have you because i was barely an observer until that point so i do residential for a month for three four months of aftercare and um they started to talk about a halfway house and i'm like uh what that's like this sounds so snobby but i was a little snobby brat let me tell you but at this time, you know, they're talking about sending me to a halfway house. And I'm like, that's like places that we donate to. Like what <laughs> I or volunteer for or whatever, right? Because to me, it's halfway houses were for homeless people that lived under a bridge, right? Or coming straight out of prison. And um, man, was that everything I needed? I, I went to the halfway house. And um, man, the humility of, I got on food stamps. My parents didn't pay for my food while I was there. I got on food stamps and um, you know, worked minimum wage. One of the best things that could have ever happened to me because I, I needed that self-inflated <laughs> importance um, shattered. And uh, you know, it, it started making me appreciate the basic things in life that are worth appreciating, right? And um, slowly earning, earning my rights. Honestly, like earning what I felt like was my right in this world, you know, to participate in society uh, again, and to, um, I don't know, 
I, I, don't, I don't know how else I could word that, but, um, you know, it, I slowly assimilated back to a place where I felt I was bringing worth to myself, to those around me, and to the world. And I didn't have hardly anything to my name, you know, um, but what I did have, I worked hard for. And um, I knew that I had done it. It wasn't something I had lied about, manipulated for, um, or anything. It was all honest. And, you know, it had been a very long time since I had experienced that. I had forgotten what that felt like. So, um, at some time at that point, I knew I wanted to work in treatment. Uh, I didn't know long term or whatever, and uh, but it was a way that I could continue that heart of service that I had always felt. And um, I started working in treatment, and I haven't stopped ever since. Uh, I've worked a million different jobs, not really a million, like ten, but ten a million, you know. Um, and uh, and so you know, I know we're we're nearing the hour, so I kind of I I, I want to at least touch on this. Um, going back to what I said, my worst fear was, um, in childhood was surrounding death and especially my own mortality. Well, if you get real specific for me, my, my worst fear was that I was going to get a brain tumor and die. And, um, so here we are a few years, this is back. My symptoms started in 2014. And, um, I, I remember thinking all throughout once I got sober, okay, I can do this thing. I can live happy and joy, happy, joyous and free. It's working for me. Right. I don't know about forever. I can do it right now. Right. I don't know about never, ever, ever having a drink again, but I know today and probably the rest of this year I can, you know, and the year started adding on, but I don't know if I ever get the news that I've got a terminal illness, something that's going to kill me, um, or affect my health in that manner. I, I don't know what I'll do. I can't, I was very scared that that, that that would equate to me uh, just falling off the deep end. So um, I start having some symptoms in 2014 and they get worse and worse. And I, in and out of the doctor, uh, the doctor's office, emergency rooms, um, I had all kinds of physical symptoms that were plaguing me and we could not figure out what they were. Uh, and this went misdiagnosed and undiagnosed for about two years until um, things got really bad in 2000, uh, the beginning of summer in 2016. And they finally found I had a brain tumor. And uh, it was, it was, it was real serious. Um, didn't end up being cancerous. Uh, but it was, you know, causing all kinds of physical problems. And when they gave me the news, it, it I guess, for whatever reason, the way it looked was like a severe form, or an aggressive form of uh, brain cancer. And so without telling me for sure, that's what it was. That's kind of what they told me or what it looked like. And they kind of removed all hope, um, giving me the worst case scenario. So here I am sitting going, Oh my God, this is my worst nightmare. Like I couldn't breathe. And, um, it was absolutely devastating. And, uh, they said, you know, go spend the rest of the day, talk to your family, give them hugs, um, pack your bags, uh, pack a big bag and uh, meet us back here. We're going to meet you at the hospital tomorrow morning. 
Uh, so I spend the rest of that week there running tests after tests on me, um, and ske- they schedule um, schedule uh, brain surgery for that Friday to remove the tumor. So I go through it, and uh, to try and make a long story a little bit shorter, um, everything went wrong. We ended up having to have a couple of follow-up brain surgeries. I had MRSA in my head. Um, I had blood clots in my lungs. Um, I lived in the ICU for multiple episodes. Um, and uh, I ended up being able to you know, maintain my sobriety throughout all of that. Um, and it was a miracle. An absolute miracle. I was going to ask you about um, that because I, I can't even imagine, you know, what kind of surgery that entails and being able to maintain your sobriety and recovery. That That's incredible. And it's also mind-blowing that you almost had these fears, and I don't want to call it a vision, but fears from childhood, you know what I mean? And, and this is, that's what happened. Yeah. It's... You know, what is it? The big book talks about, um, you know, like our darkest, I'm, I'm horrible at quoting, but talk, something about like the darkest part of our past ends up being something that we use that, that benefits us and others so much in the future. And, um, you know, that is a narrative that rings true in so many parts of my life, but especially in regards to that, because my worst fear coming true um, I truly believe that my higher power met me where I was at and carried me through. Um, I continued to sh- suit up, show up, and talk with my sponsor, um, do what I said I was going to do, remain honest, um, and trust. Just trust. Um, and I walked away from this thing with absolutely nothing but blessings because today I'm able to live my life in such a way that uh, my my whole perspective was shifted, was rocked and shifted um, in a way that I truly believe nobody who's, uh, who ha- anybody who hasn't made it through a life-threatening circumstance like that can't possibly know what it's like and not to take away from anybody else's life perspective or experiences. Um, but, um, but truly, you know, that, that gave me tools and a perspective that has not only made me appreciate everything in life, but um, my recovery and my sobriety in such a way that um, I, I feel so much more meaning mm. in service I'm able to do in each day that I get to wake up today um, in the relationships that I get to participate in um, because of what happened to me. Mm-hmm. And um, not only that, but I think that <laughs> me making it through what I made it through and not um, falling into back into addiction um, and not letting it eat me alive and take me down a path. I remember there was a point where my doctor said, Patrick, um, everybody I have in situations like this, there's a fork in the road that happens where you determine either you're going to be a patient for the rest Mm -hmm. of your life, or you're going to be a fighter and fight your way back to living a normal life. And I had to do that. There was a point I had to learn, um, that, 
I hadn't been able to walk. I had to go to therapy to be able to walk again. I had to, I mean, you name it. Like there was a lot I had to fight to get back in my life. Um, and not only that, but so I will tell you just to be completely transparent, I had to, I had brain surgery. I had to be on painkillers through all of that. So that also meant I had to come off of them. And in my active addiction, I had never had opiates of any kind. Um, so that was my first exposure to it. But day in and day out, I'm on opiates for six months long. Anybody's going to have to withdraw. So I had to fight through coming off of, uh, uh, you know, heavy amounts of opiates as well and not fall into the addiction. That's when people fall into addiction, right? Is when it's time to come off of it and you aren't able to or you, you know, you know, sidestep and go buy it off the street because you can't step down when the doctor is telling you to. So, I mean, I say that probably was in my top three hardest things I've ever done in my life was that piece where I had to come off of the pain meds, but I did it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, so, you know, I, I always, I always am wary of saying I did it so anybody can do it because I know we're all different. We all have different makeups and, you know, um, but man, if you're listening or watching this and anything, you know, that I've been sharing about my story, you feel like you can relate to, you know, I, I just want you to know that there is hope. There are so many points in my story where, um, I, I couldn't see hope and I couldn't see the solution and I couldn't see past the moment or the day, but willing to ask for and accept help and just keep moving forward, I think it are the most essential pieces to what has brought me and brought me to this point where I'm still alive and healthy in front of you all today. So, um, gosh, I'm long winded. Can I, can I just ask one quick question? Can you just tell us what your home and life looks like today under your own roof. We, we, we hear that you've talked about, you know, relationships and, you know, family struggles on acceptance and whatnot. And I think it's important that we hear what your beautiful life is like today. Um, well, thanks for asking that question. Cause I, um, am, I'm really blessed and excited to get to share that piece. Uh, I moved through all my issues with uh, my sexuality and, you know, came out a year into sobriety and um, ended up a few years later meeting the love of my life, Jeremy. And uh, we got married in 2017. We live in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and um, we love our life. Our friends um, live life to the fullest. Uh, like the like the two of you, you know, us three have talked about just, you know, anything, everything we can do that's fun, that brings joy to life. Like I will not live a mediocre life. I won't. Mm. You know? And um, and I don't mean that everything I ha- I do has to be important. I mean that I will absolutely bring passion and 100% of me and my effort to everything that I do, right? And joy and seek joy always. So, um, uh, you know, that I have been absolutely gifted with a wonderful life today because of making, uh, making good choice after good choice, I would say, you know, the, doing the next right thing. Um, and I know we kind of talked about a question you had had, Laurie, was, you know, what was, what, um, 
uh, was my my grand goal, you know, in life, what what, what I want. And I would say that I already have more than 50% of that. You know, I have a career working with Promises Behavioral Health that I love. Um, I love our company and everyone in it. And I love what I get to do working with and giving back to the alumni. Um, I'm married to the love of my life and I'm so happy about that. I would uh-huh. say that the only piece that's missing is that I've always felt like um, I wanna be a dad. And um, I'm, so, I want a kid. We want to. We want a kid. We're looking at options for that, and um, so, you know, as with everything, it's in God's timing. And so, um, you know, maybe one of these days, we'll have uh, we'll have an addition to the family. So right now, we've got two little dogs, Carter and Sully, that we love. And um, uh, yeah, if you're friends with us on social media, you see their pictures way too often. So. <laughs> That's. That's amazing. I mean, you're certainly somebody, um, you know, in this cycling group I'm involved with, you know, I hear all this motivational speaking and it says we turn our test into our testimony and I didn't wake up today to be mediocre, mediocre. And you've said, I mean, that is completely you, completely resilient strength and sharing. I mean, literally I've been moved to tears. Like you're just, Mm -hmm. I, I really cannot even thank you enough for opening your soul and your heart and sharing everything you did with us. I mean, and so great to have all your family back together and supportive and reaping the benefits of your recovery, you know, and such a happy life with Jeremy. That's amazing. I'm going to second that. Um, I'm so grateful for you sharing your story. One thing that really like stuck out to me was when you were describing yourself as a child um, and just like you volunteering and you wanting to and, and, I mean, I think it's so beautiful because you have a heart of gold, right? Like I was getting teared up too, like how you made it through that surgery and just everything that you've overcome. And, but like in your heart, you always wanted to make a difference and help others. And I think it's just so beautiful how it all came to be. Now you're helping others in recovery. And it's so interesting when you see somebody when they're using and it's like, you're like, it's not them. Like the parents are so upset and you're like this, this person you're seeing that's doing all these terrible things is not your loved one. Like, but it's when you get sober, that comes all back out. Like, look at you now making a difference every day. Pretty cool. And I'm very grateful to hear your story and thankful you let and I be a part of your journey. And can I just say one last thing? We'll be on until like five o'clock tonight. I think it's important also to say, because you, Patrick, you did talk about like the shame you felt when you, you know, were asked to leave nursing school. And the truth is, and all of us in recovery say this, every drink, drug, crime, DUI, arrest, lie, all necessary to get us right here, right now. You know, and we all know in the rooms of recovery, more is always revealed, you know, and in my story, I had to go to jail for a year. And now that was just part of my journey that was necessary to get me where I am now and be able to help people on a platform that I do. And the same with you, every part of our story. So if somebody's struggling and, and in silence, you know, and struggling behind a screen, remember that everything that's happening is part of your journey and holding on to shame and thinking that, you know, you can't get past it. Here's three people in long-term recovery who don't have a beautiful past, but without our past, we wouldn't have our present. And I think it's so important just to you have to, we look back and now we say, you know what, I actually wouldn't change anything because it would change where I am now. 
That's and right. I, people who are struggling need to hear that because as ugly as the situation may be, it's where they're meant to be at this moment to get them to where they're going. So I'll end with that. So thank you so much for sharing. You are amazing. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to share. And, um, you know, I, the person, the person that you're talking to right now is a combination, a culmination of, um, continue to make, Good choices, you know, and uh, I truly believe my higher power showing up to to meet me where I'm at, and um, you know I can only take so much credit, um, and uh, you know the in, in respecting traditions, I, I won't name it, but uh, a twelve step community and program um, also really helped me and helps me to this to this day, you know. So um, there's a lot that, as you guys know. Um, contributes to bringing the you know the healthy person alive in front of in front of you so um yeah with that i guess we'll we'll end the in the broadcast this was fun y'all hey thank you great thank you so much patrick thanks Lori, and thank you bevan and just you know if anybody's struggling reach out to one of us reach out to promises you are not alone you don't have to struggle do not struggle in silence there's so much hope, there's so much help. Please let us help you. For more information on today's episode, check out the show notes. Recovery Stories is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 877-351-7504 or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Whether you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please share with your friends. Follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are grateful for you and hope that you have been encouraged by today's episode. As always, remember you are only one decision away from a completely different life, and it is never too late to start loving yourself. 